seated. Good morning again. Today's gospel reading open that we just heard opens with what most of us appears to be the essential request for anyone who desires to follow increase our faith. I mean, think about it. As we go through the knockdown of living as part of isn't the essential request to increase our faith just so we can hold on, hold on to hope, hold on to belief? Jesus' response appears on the surface to be kind of a reprimand. If you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could... Then he goes on to provide a confusing analogy of a mulberry tree planting itself in the sea. Think about it. The face the size of a mustard seed. We've heard that before. And we're more familiar with Matthew's take on what might be called a mustard seed faith. The disciples come from their journeys disappointed. In Matthew's case, they couldn't cast out demons, and Jesus tells them, because of your little faith. For truly, I tell you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, the Matthew reading, as I said, is the more familiar one. And the tendency, I think, is to apply the same logic here and imagine that Jesus is chastising the apostles for asking him to increase our faith. But here's another way to think about it. Maybe Jesus' response isn't chastising. Instead, it's reassuring the apostles. They have plenty of faith, more than enough. They just don't know how to use it. And key to this understanding are Jesus' words to the disciples in the verses just before what we heard today. In the preceding verse, he tells them, be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. You must forgive. I don't know about you, but forgiveness is not easy, especially when reparations aren't made. And it's too easy to repent. So we'd say something like, time must be served, or be tough on it, or an eye for an eye. We cry all those out, but forgiveness, true forgiveness is quite possibly the greatest mark of Jesus' teaching. And just as faith is needed to cast out demons in Matthew, faith is needed to forgive. If belief is the proper stance for us as Christians, just put in mind the familiar John 3.16 citation that elevates belief. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have life everlasting. If we stand in a posture of belief, then I wonder if forgiveness isn't the central act of being a Christian. Jesus' final words on the cross say as much. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So forgiveness. The apostles, you see, have plenty of faith. They need to put it to use, to forgive. There's no need to ask for more. Speaking of forgiveness, a theologian and, and a St. Peter's favorite, goes by the name of Paul Tillich, a quote, he seems to affirm the centrality of forgiveness. He says, quote, forgiveness is an answer, the divine answer, to the question implied in our existence, end quote. 
So forgiveness is the key to this gnawing sense of purpose that we search for throughout our lives. Forgiveness is key to that insatiable hunger for meaning. Now the second part of the gospel reading is, is well, at its best, is problematic. Known as the parable of the worthless slave, it's impossible to read it without the weight of the centuries of slavery that we've had in this country. On this very land, other translations replace slave with servant, which sounds better, but it's still the same thing. So let's humbly put aside this chronically evil bit of history for, for the moment and search for Jesus' deeper meaning because it helps us unlock this gospel. You see, the, the disciples are commanded to radical forgiveness, which we just talked about. In turn, they're scared. They ask for faith. Jesus assures them their faith is enough. And then he tells this parable of the worthless slave. The analogy is unfortunate, as I just talked about. But I think Jesus is using master and slave because that was a familiar relationship to the, to the listeners of Jesus and Luke's day. It's lost to us, thank goodness, and darkened by our own history. But it was a familiar relationship. Think of it in the way that we think of the father-son relationship in Luke's more familiar prodigal son parable. See, in that world, it would be unthinkable for the master to dine with the slave. It would be unthinkable for the slave to be thanked for doing what he was supposed to do all along. Jesus closed the reading directly to the apostles. He says, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. We have done only what we ought to have done. And that thing that we've done, that ought to have done thing, that thing, I think, is to forgive. Now, it sounds easy. Forgive all who repent, but they know it isn't. And that's why the apostles ask for more faith, because it's a radical, un universal forgiveness. If Oprah were doing it, she'd, you could see her shouting out, you are forgiven, and you are forgiven, yes, even you are forgiven. It's that radical. Now, in their book, The Spirituality of Imperfection, which has been a wonderful resource for me over these past, this past month, the writers Ernest Kurtz and Catherine Ketchum recount a story that's going to be familiar to many of us. They say a former inmate of a Nazi concentration camp was visiting with a friend who had shared that ordeal with him. Have you forgiven the Nazis? He asked his friend. Yes. Well, I haven't. I'm still consumed with hatred for them. In that case, said his friend gently, they still have you in prison. See, the opposite of forgiveness is resentment, and boy, that is so much easier to hold on to. We live in a culture of resentment. And it's arguable that culture is destroying us. The foundational Alcoholics Anonymous text, also known as the Big Blue Book, makes this shocking statement. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. And it goes on, because from resentment stems all forms of spiritual disease. You see, it's resentment, not the bottle, that's the stumbling block that starts the descent, that sets the trap. Now, as you know, I took a few weeks out during the month of September, as you may know, um, to begin my healing. I developed a regimen of daily bicycling. I love to bicycle. and I was going out on the road, going past the airport, 
it's about a mile from my house, and it follows the river for 15 or so miles and is remarkably flat for central Arkansas. I always had a headwind, but it's remarkably flat. And I could do 20, 25 miles out and back, music in my earbuds, the road remarkably empty. I noticed the first several days I would ride and my mind would become filled with petty slights or little points of anger, some of them going back decades. They'd come to me like bubbles rising to the surface, and I would stick to them, I would dwell on them, replay them over and over in my mind. In the process, I'd think of clever comebacks or maybe hurtful response. The waves of resentment washed over me, and it felt good because it felt alive. I did some of my best times when I descended into my resentment. But as the days and the rides went on, there were fewer and fewer resentments bubbling up. Instead, I'd lose myself in the sunshine, the constant headwinds, the insects that jumped out just before I passed. And over the course of it, I found that I had found forgiveness. Or better put, that forgiveness had found me. You see, my resentments had melted away. In their chapter on forgiveness in the book I talked about, The Spirituality of Imperfection, they cite the Matthew story where our buddy Peter asked Jesus, Lord, when my brother wrongs me, how often must I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus basically answers, Jesus basically answers with an endless forgiveness. Not seven times, I say, 70 times, seven times. See, Peter wants a rule book. He wants a tidy end to this messy forgiveness stuff. Kind of a seven strikes and you're out approach. And Jesus' response says, in effect, I am unwilling to give you a way out of a continuing relationship to your brother. I'm unwilling to give you a way out of your continuing relationship to your brother. We stay in communion. See, forgiveness, true forgiveness isn't easy. And the apostles know that in today's reading. That's why they ask for more faith. Now, to be clear, forgiveness is not an explanation. Oh, they're just that kind of person. So, so they didn't know better or the like. You've heard it. That pushes the pain down deeper. It increases the chance for resentment. And neither is forgiveness forgetting, pushing it out of sight, out of mind. Besides, you don't ever really forget, do you? I still find myself remembering arguments with my dad some 50 years ago. Why was he so hell-bent on me pitching in Little League? Why couldn't I just ride my bike? Trying to forget feeds into the illusion that we are in control, that we can forgive. Confusing forgetting, forgiving with forgetting also creates that trap that those mistakes and wrongdoings, not only they, can they be forgiven, but they should be forgotten. Not only can they be forgotten, but they should be forgotten. It's in the past. Just let it go. Haven't we already been through this? There's not much more frustrating than being told to let something go. It's, my, in my idea, it's a, it's a direct nonstop flight to resentment, that is. On my bike rides, I found that over time, I hadn't actually forgiven the decades of hurt and pain that had accumulated, but that I had discovered forgiveness. Somehow the weight lifted. I could feel myself healing as I let those bubbles of resentment wither up and go. I discovered forgiveness because I remembered all the times, all the times I had been forgiven for something I had done. And there have been plenty. The outpouring of love from you all 
reassured me that you had forgiven me my flaws and imperfections that weighed me down in my head. And that, that act above all, gave me license to start to forgive myself for maybe the first time in my life. And I still have bubbles of resentments that pop up from time to time, sharp feelings that make me want to do something stupid, like make a phone call or send an email or worse, send a text. You know that feeling. That somehow justice is just around the corner if I can only compose the right sharply worded message. Any understanding of forgiveness must include some form of responsibility. Mistakes were made. Mistakes will be made. I think that's why the apostles think they need more faith. And forgiveness isn't something to be proud about or to be rewarded. As the apostles are told to remember, we have done only what we ought to have done. Forgiveness is the cost of admission. It's the greens fees to being a follower of Christ. As you leave here this morning, I ask you to rely on your faith, even if it's as tiny as a mustard seed, because it's there. And with it, you can make mulberry trees take root in the sea. You can move mountains. You can forgive. Thanks be to God. Amen.